You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome to the United States Institute of Peace, a public, nonpartisan institution established by the United States Congress to prevent, mitigate, and resolve conflicts around the world. My name is Peter Mandeville, and I'm a senior advisor for religion and inclusive societies here at the Institute. Religion has been a part of the Institute's work almost from the moment we opened our doors. The religion program is the longest running thematic program that the Institute has, and our work is focused on studying, engaging with, and supporting religious actors around the world as they work to prevent and solve conflicts in their respective homelands and countries. For this reason, we are very privileged to welcome today to the Institute a visiting delegation from the All-Ukrainian Council of Churches and Religious Organizations. Some of them were welcoming back to the Institute. Some of them I've had the pleasure of meeting on previous travel to Kyiv, and we are just delighted to have them here. I also wanted to acknowledge the presence of a couple of special guests his Grace, uh, Metropolitan Archbishop Boris Kudziak of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic community is with us today. And we also have Sheikhna El Mahfouz bin Baya, the Secretary General of the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies. We're also uh, delighted to be partnering on this event with the Eurasia Center of the Atlantic Council, um, as well as Razom for Ukraine. We'll be hearing from Ambassador Herbst from the Atlantic Council a little bit later. USIP has been doing work on the intersection of religion and the war in Ukraine for quite some time now. We've been in a kind of research and analytic vein, tracing uh, key developments and dynamics since 2018. Uh, we had the pleasure of welcoming to USIP uh, the primate of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, uh, Metropolitan Epiphany, in 2019. Last year, we published the inaugural edition of our new series of religion, peace, and conflict country profiles focused on Ukraine. And I'm delighted that just last week, we were able to finally publish our full-scale religious landscape map study of Ukraine. It's available for download in the publication section of USIP's website. Um, and certainly, it speaks about Alcro fairly extensively. Through this work, we've come to see the many intersections of religion and the current war. The key role that faith-based organizations, many of them tied to the churches and religious institutions represented here, the crucial role they played in the early weeks and months of the war in terms of providing important and vital humanitarian services and relief. We've seen more negative and, and destructive sides of the intersection of religion and the war, such as missiles, Russian missiles and artillery strikes on religious facilities and churches. We've also seen a complex politics and security concerns rise up around the historical ties of one branch of Ukraine's Orthodox Church to, to Russia. Through all of these complexities, through all of these challenges, Alcro, I think, has been a unique and crucial voice, allowing the religious leaders of Ukraine to speak collectively and in solidarity with each other in support of the Ukrainian cause. I'm now delighted to turn things over to my USIP colleague and former US ambassador to Ukraine, Masha Yovanovitch. Thank you very much. It is uh, really a pleasure to be with our distinguished um, panelists and also with everybody else in the room. I know many of you are experts in, in this area. I'm not gonna do an introduction because frankly, we don't have that much time. And so I wanna go right to questions. We're gonna have about 20 minutes um, of, of uh, questions from, from me. Um, and then there are gonna be questions uh, from the audience. So I have two, um, two instructions. The audience should be thinking about their questions and getting ready. Um, and uh, we're hoping that um, we can do at least one round of questions with everybody, perhaps even two. Um, so um, brevity is uh, close to uh, godliness, I think, uh, in, in this context. But first, uh, I would like to ask the Metropolitan to, to lead us in, uh, in prayer. Please rise. And at this moment, we remember 
all those who fallen in Ukraine fighting for freedom of our country and all the world we keep in in our prayers Ukrainian brave soldiers peaceful inhabitants who lost their lives who suffered because of Russian aggressive invasion who lost their homes their relatives we praying for refugees and IDPs we praying for those who wounded who uh, suffered because of uh, mental wounds and we praying indeed for peace for long-lasting just peace for Ukraine we asked God's help for everyone who helps to provide this just long-lasting peace who working to create this peace for Ukraine for Europe and for entire the world and I ask to keep one moment in silence in remembrance of all those who lost their lives because of this Russian invasion and aggression. I'll turn to you first, and I was um, hoping that maybe you could set the stage uh, for uh, for this discussion and tell us um, uh, the purpose of uh, this this trip. Um, obviously, it's an ecumenical uh, trip, which I think is significant in and of itself, and what you hope to accomplish um, here in the United States. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank, uh, as always, our. Uh, 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 very good partner, United States Institute of Peace. Uh, as well, we thanks to uh, Foundation Razum, uh, which helped uh, our delegation uh, to be here. Uh, I th on behalf of all our delegation, we thanks Atlantic Council, all our partners who made uh, this uh, visit possible mm -hmm. because even to reach United States for those who live in Ukraine is a very hard task but we uh, are here because uh, many important reasons first mm -hmm. of all we would like to express our deepest gratitude mm -hmm. to the people uh, of United States uh, government non-governmental organizations all those who are supporting uh, Ukraine is this darkest time of our history uh, we have deepest gratitude to those who understand our sufferers who mm -hmm. share our pain and uh, who really helps us to achieve as soon as possible the victory of truth mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Uh, other, uh, our goal is to present in person uh, Ukrainian uh, religious freedom, diversity, uh, deep mutual understanding and cooperation because our council of churches and religious organizations is a non-governmental institution which created uh, by our own will more than uh, uh, 25 years ago and we have uh, 15 members mm -hmm. different churches who represents almost 90 
5% of entire Ukrainian religious community. We have representatives of different Christian denominations, uh, Muslim community and Jewish community. And uh, it is a very unique example of not just uh, peaceful coexistence mm -hmm. of people who have different uh, faith, different national identity, but deep and fruitful mutual cooperation. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we uh, had, uh, for this more than 25 uh, five years, we had a number of uh, meetings, uh, uh, visits uh, uh, abroad, and we know from our experience how it's uh, important to pre just present ourselves because just now mm -hmm. in current world uh, I think it's a one of most important examples of mm -hmm. peaceful coexistence mm -hmm. and we try to bring this good news from Ukraine that inside Ukraine we have this cooperation we really enjoy uh, freedom of religion <coughs> and belief. Mm -hmm. We really protect uh, uh, these rights. Uh, and uh, last but not least, our goal is to share our experience. Because we are eyewitnesses mm -hmm. of Russian atrocities, of uh, what's going on in our country. We have deep co cooperation with uh, different uh, uh, people from uh, the gra uh, grassroots level and we understand what our nation need mm -hmm. and we try to share with our partners here mm -hmm. because only together <coughs> we uh, are able to uh, prevent uh, very real catastrophe of Third World War, and uh, I think with uh, help, with partnership of uh, all people of goodwill in United States and around the globe, so no later, but we will achieve uh, victory for truth uh, in Ukraine and in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Metropolitan. Rabbi Blake, I don't know if you want to expand on that in terms of the ecumenical view and, and relations among among religions in Ukraine and um, the status of freedom of religion uh, for the Jewish faith, but perhaps also others. First thing I would say is that the Council of Churches and Religious Organizations is non-ecumenical. Mm. That's the first thing I would say. Right. I think that that's what keeps the peace. The uh, um, and that's an important point. The point is that what brings us together is the fact that we're all representing religious communities different of different faiths obviously but when you come around the table this it's not me and my faith against you and your faith but it's us together as people of faith against the challenges that people of faith have in Ukraine or in the world you know in relations to government or relations to everything else this is what keeps us together this is the glue that keeps us together we're a real non-governmental organization in other words we really we, we didn't start out that way but in 2003, and especially in 2004, after the Orange Revolution, the council understood that our power will be by being a non-governmental organization. Mm -hmm. That's where our power lies, not with being controlled or quasi-governmental, which we were before, but really to have a totally independent organization. And thank God we were successful in doing that, because that's really what gives the success and the power of the council. So. Um, Living in Ukraine, by the way, and I'm an American citizen, if anyone can tell from my accent. Um, I'm probably the oldest expat living in Ukraine, but I'm there since 1989. So I witnessed Ukraine going through its, you know, the, the throes of independence in the beginning of the 90s, the different, uh, I would say, revolutions. Ukraine was a lucky country. They got more than one chance. They got, uh, you know, a chance in 1991, and they got a chance in 2004, and then they got a chance in 2012, and now they have another chance. And what's happening is you're seeing the development 
of a true democracy. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, we thought that it's great because everything is good and there are no wars and nothing is happening. But the fact is, the difference between the, the 2004 revolution and 2014 one was that 2004, no blood was spilled, thank God. Whereas in 2014, when blood is spilled, at least in religion, we know that that's a covenant that will last and stay. In other words, the, the fact, and I'll be honest with you, that I, as again, as an American citizen living in Ukraine and the head of the Jewish community, the moment I saw the first shot fired at the Maidan, I knew it was over. Hmm. There, was no, there, was, there was no politics and no diplomatic approaches anymore. That's it. It was over. And the, the approach that we're bringing here, the message that we're bringing here is, first of all, just look at us. Yeah. Just look at us. This is a real council of churches and religious organizations, unlike some of our neighbors, right? This is real. Here, people are here because they want to be here. They're representing someone, and we're not being chosen by the government who should be members and who shouldn't be members. We have 18 members here. And these 18 members represent, as you heard, 95% of all of the faithful in Ukraine, no matter what religion. That's something really, really special for this as a non-governmental <coughs> organization. So that is our first message. Just look at us. We sit, we talk, we have freedom, we make decisions. Mm-hmm. When laws are passed that affect religious life in Ukraine, our voice is heard. We are able to represent, I can't say we always win, because politics is politics, and Ukraine is a, a you know, obviously it's a political country, and, the, and it's not ruled by government, by, by religion. So I can't say, but at least our voice is heard. We can lobby. We can go meet with the different factions in the parliament. We can put forth our our uh, opinions, and and all of our th- all of our opinions and all of our statements are all unanimous. Mm-hmm. There's no majority ruling with the in the council, which is something. It says something about the fact that we're able to bring this all together. Mm-hmm. The the message that the Metropolitan spoke about, and I think that's the most important message, is that we represent the people. The Temerity Foundation paid for our tickets. The, uh, the, uh, the Razum Foundation is paying for our visit here, etc. And the different foundations are participating. We were not and are not funded by the government, even one penny. So we don't have anything to say, and the government has nothing to say about what we say either. We're here representing the people of Ukraine. We're here representing the people, the millions of people that had to run, that we, all of these religious organizations here, helped them. We're here representing the millions of people that were displaced, the women and children that are being bombed every single day, and they're being killed every day. That's what we're here to represent. We're here to tell the story of the 10%. The 10% is the difference between an NGO spending money and a government spending money. We know that every NGO knows it, that for every dollar spent by the US government, it will cost 10 cents for an NGO to do the same thing. For a war fought by the United States against the same enemy that Ukraine is fighting would cost more than 10 times as much. Ukraine is representing today and taking the heat for the democratic world. We're there, the only reason Russia is fighting us is because we're a democracy. The same way, excuse me for comparing it, that Hamas is fighting Israel because it's a Jewish state. They're fighting because it's a democracy. It's, it's, and I think that this is very, very important for the American people. Again, I'm an American, I'm a taxpayer, by the way, too. I file taxes. So, so I understand when the questions go, what's happening to all that money? What's happening to all that money? And, and Masha, who knows better than you, how many people at the rank of ambassador are in Ukraine today looking where that money is going from the American side? So the question of where the money is going should not be to the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people, but to the American government. And I'm sure the American government can account for every single penny that's going on and all of the weapons. Everything is being controlled today. That's not, it's not the Wild West out there in Ukraine. It's not the CIA smuggling arms in there and nobody knowing who's getting them and, and envelopes of cash. That's not what we're dealing with today. Again, the, this is our message and our message is Again, not to lobby government, but to speak to the people, people of the United States, good people of the United States, understand what's happening. We are being killed every single day, and it's the, the, the height of hypocrisy when Putin gets up and criticizes Israel for attacking Gaza and saying that there are civilians there and women and children will be killed, innocent women and children will be killed and left without a roof on their heads. He has been doing that for nine years every single day. Every single day for the last nine, almost 10 years. Civilians, women and children are being bombed. Their homes are being destroyed. Russia has not conquered any 
land in Ukraine. They have only destroyed land. And this is our message here. I hope I, was, I didn't take too much time. But you're, you're right on the money. But that's, that's, that's my message, and that's our message here mm -hmm. today to get this message out to the people of the United States. Thank you. Thank you. It is so important, I think, for all of us um, to hear your witness of, of, of what is happening in Ukraine uh, today, because I think that with the, you know, all the news going on, people sometimes forget. Right. Um, so uh, I did want to turn to uh, Sheikh uh, Tamim. Um, to ask you about the um, Muslim experience in, in, in Ukraine under these circumstances, with Crimea still being occupied by, by the Russians. What is the, um, what is the situation in Crimea, first of all, and secondly, uh, in Ukraine with so many um, uh, Crimean Tatars, um, you know, evacuating themselves uh, to... First, uh, I uh, want to uh, speak, thank you everybody to come here and to invite us to speak about uh, our Ukrainian community. Mm -hmm. uh, we like uh, the representative of the Muslim, but we are working all together one, uh, one power, one front. Uh, because uh, uh, Ukraine for us, that's uh, the government or the land who join us all together. And we have uh, the free uh, uh, any possibility which we want to do we can uh, uh, do in ukraine uh, about the situation i want to tell you that uh, we tried uh, many time to uh, 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 opposite anyone who want to use the religion for their political mm -hmm. uh, movement and uh, uh, when uh, uh, russia occupied the, the Crimea and the Donbass. And uh, the Ukrainian uh, people make the Maidan revolution. Uh, we uh, find uh, somebody who uh, put uh, in YouTube uh, the uh, Islamic government in Donbass. Mm -hmm. And uh, we find somebody who can use the uh, Islam or the Muslim community to destroy Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we uh, uh, organized the international uh, community for all the uh, representatives of the minority uh, nationality in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's about uh, 60 organizations. And uh, we uh, control the Islamic uh, movement in Ukraine. This is a two uh, questions that's very important to keep Ukraine, to defend Ukraine and uh, don't give anybody to destroy Ukraine like Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia and others. That's uh, uh, some information uh, about our job. Uh, we came here to explain everybody uh, for the government that government. But uh, uh, anyone, you know, we are representative of the uh, majority of the Ukrainian uh, citizen. Mm -hmm. And we want to speak with the Ukrainian citizen, uh, to American citizen, to understand us. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask the Muslim community here, mm -hmm. who help Ukraine? Yeah. Who help Ukraine? We receive, like Muslim community, from uh, Jews, from Christian, and the delegation come to Mosque from Europe, from America, but without the Muslim representative. Hmm. Why? We are part of the Ukrainian community, and we defend our land. Mm -hmm. And somebody wants to use the Islam to uh, kill the others, and use this one for their political, like Russia and others. I want to uh, ask everybody, think about the Ukraine like one government and we have one land and must help us to save Ukraine because for us that's uh, an example for many countries in Europe, mm -hmm. in America, how we can live all together. Mm -hmm. I want to ask the Muslim community uh, you help any, uh, anybody, but uh, you don't see the Muslim community and the Ukrainian citizen. Why? I don't understand. 
That's my question. And have you got received an answer to that question? Have you received an answer to that question? No, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Okay. Well, we'll want not to hear yet. what the answer is because um, certainly deserves a, a good answer. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, Mr. Bruson, um, I, uh, Bishop Bruson, I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, the, the Protestant, uh, the evangelical community in Ukraine is relatively small, but. Um, relatively influential, including, um, you know, having many ties here in the United States. And I'm wondering, um, you know, I guess first of all, what your experience, your community's experience has been uh, during the war, um, but also uh, your important role in um, the reconstruction uh, of, of Ukraine. Yeah, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to all of you for supporting Ukraine. And I want to underline that this war is not about our land. This mm -hmm. war is about the very existence of our freedom, identity, values and culture. This is about people, about human life. There is no space for the Ukrainian identity under Russian dominion. So for us it's very clear, fight or die. Mm -hmm. And we are here as people of Ukraine, and I'm speaking to you out of Bucha, because my apartment is Bucha, which was occupied and looted by the Russians. I am leading a seminary which was hit by six missiles by the Russians. We have graduates and pastors and chaplains who were murdered. So please hear our cry. I want to witness that we enjoy religious freedom that we have in Ukraine. Because for 70 years we have been persecuted by the Soviet Union. We know what does it mean not to have this freedom. And now we do have this freedom. And also I want to underline and you know, draw your attention to the problem of religious freedom on the temporary occupied places. Mm -hmm. We are not speaking about a lot of churches and buildings taken away. Mm -hmm. We are speaking about people being murdered just because they have different faith. Mm -hmm. So, and um, because I'm in Washington and Martin Luther King is one of my heroes, <laughs> I, like, I like his speech here, I have a dream, but he has another quote. Mm -hmm. Injustice somewhere is a threat for justice everywhere. There is a significant existential challenge for justice on the occupied lands. So this is our invitation to think about freedom, justice. And um, I am very proud to see how different religious communities of different faith and traditions, they join hands in order to help fellow Ukrainians. And we do have big plans to rebuild Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Ukraine have future because we fight not for land, we fight for values. Mm -hmm. And we hope that People of the United States who love freedom, justice, democracy, and peace will not leave us alone. Thank you. Thank you very much um, to uh, all of you. Um, so I'm going to throw it open to, to the floor. I think um, you've heard a lot of uh, interesting comments. We haven't had a chance to really follow up, but this is your chance uh, to follow up. So who wants to be the first person? Representative. Is there a microphone? Yeah. Do you want to bring it over? Could, could you wait just a second because I think this is being recorded. Yeah, Jim Slattery. Uh, I'm curious how you all react to the legislation that was under consideration last week in the RADA that was uh, attempting to, some people might say, regulate, control uh, the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine. I'm just curious how you all react to that. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak some Jewish, so I'll, I'll speak about it. I, as, as Orthodox. And I'm also Orthodox, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, I want everyone here to understand the challenge that Ukraine is standing in front of. The question here is not a regulation of religion, and the proof is in the pudding. Because, I'm, like I said, I'm living this since 1989. I've seen freedom of religion grow and grow and grow in Ukraine. No question about it that over the last uh, 33 years that Ukraine has been independent, there's been a tremendous, tremendous growth of religious movement, religious life, religious freedom. Uh, indeed, 
when uh, I, I would say when this government came into power, they had come right after Ukraine had created and uh, the canonical church of Ukraine, the, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, and because that was done by the previous president, so politically there was even some leaning, you know, towards the what we call the Moscow Patriarchate of Ukrainian Orthodox Church. However, the challenge that Ukraine has is when there's a church that is 101% controlled by a government that is waging war against you. The, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, unfortunately, because you know there are good people everywhere, including in, in the church there, however, when it has become evident, when Ukraine began this, they began by just arresting individual priests that were found doing things and breaking the law and spreading and working for Russia within Ukraine. They did begin with that. It didn't come and say, oh, let's get rid of this church. You have to understand that politically, it is not a very smart move to uh, quote, quote unquote regulate a church that millions of people living in Ukraine are members of that church. And there's no way it's faith. It's not that they're going to be able to say, okay, now move over to the other church. It doesn't work that way. However, at the same time, Ukraine is challenged. There's a war going on. And that war is what we call a hybrid mm. war. And part of the hybridity of that war is that the, the, if Russia can work through the churches, they're working through the churches. And I'll give you an example. Like I said, I'm an Orthodox Jew. But in 2005, I personally, in my office in Kiev, was approached by two representatives of the FSB, the Russian Security Services, if I would work for them and help them create a structure whereby they will be able to control the Jewish community in Ukraine and use that structure to disseminate them. This was told to me openly. It's not like it was, uh, you know, they were they were hiding. They said they'll give me all the money I need, and I'll be I'll have all the money that Lazar has in Russia and all the power that he has there. They'll give it to me in Kiev. All I had to do was head an organization and help them create an organization. And there, and what they told me was the reason is because they said they're trying to get Ukraine to unite with Russia on top. It's not working. They're going to work through try and work through the civil society and organizations on bottom. So I threw them down the stairs, you know, figuratively, and threw them out of my office, but I don't know how many people they went to besides me that they got to do these things. So they'll use any means that they can to get into Ukraine and to try and control and bring their point of view. And as my colleague said, to take away our freedom because they're, they're fighting against our way of life, which is democracy and freedom. That's what the fight is against. So they'll use the church for that. And in general, the problem is that the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, not only is, does he bless the soldiers that go out to murder us, not only, he's even collecting money to pay private armies now to go to Ukraine and to kill people. That's basically what's happening because it's not a war against, of the Russian army against the Ukrainian army, as we heard. Mm -hmm. This is a war of, of the Russian army against the Ukrainian people. And not only Ukrainian ethnic people, but even Russian ethnic people, if they want to live democratically, they're the ones that are getting killed. I want to remind everybody that the parts of Ukraine that are now occupied are occupied by ethnic Russians. They're not ethnic Ukrainians. It's part of Ukraine, but most of the people, they were Russian speakers. The ones that Russia said they're coming to save. And what have they done? They're murdering them. They're killing them. They're bombing them. Kherson, that in their so-called constitution is part of Russia, is being bombed every single day by dozens and dozens of bombs. So if the church, again, the, the, the structure of the church is very difficult. And believe me, I'm Jewish, okay? I'm gonna be open with you and honest with you. I look at this and I say, what's the precedent here? They're controlling a religion? And what happens if somebody else comes up and doesn't like the Jews or the Muslims or somebody else? They're gonna start controlling them? This is a very frightening thing. And I've met with members of Ukrainian security service about this, about what is the right way and what is the balance that they can do to maintain the peace, to, to maintain the law within rule of law. You can't tell somebody, okay, if you're a church, you can break the law, you can work for the enemy. It just doesn't work that way. Even if you're a man of the cloth and if you're a man of faith and you're a religious leader, when you break the law, you have to pay for it. And this, is, this is what's happening and that's why we're looking at it, of course, obviously we're all nervous about it and we're all worried about it and we're all concerned about it, but at the end of the day, Ukraine has to survive, Ukraine has to thrive as a democracy and 
it, it, it just will not happen if it's going to be controlled or if parts of it are going to be controlled from the enemy state while the war is going on. Thank you. If, if I may. Does anybody else want to add a uh, if, if you won't, uh, I would like to add some, uh, something uh, to this beautiful explanation mm -hmm. because I'm sure everything what uh, Rabbi have been told. Uh, we must understand that uh, in 1943 Stalin's government create special institution which have title Moscow Patriarch church title and publicly leading by church uh, uh, persons but since that time, Moscow Patriarchy, as a ruling or governing body, is totally controlled by Kremlin. It was during the Soviet time and still is during the Putin's dictatorship. Moreover, during the Soviet time was a huge split because of ideology. Church believe in God, communist party was a community of uh, atheists. But now, Russia officially use religion, every uh, kind of religion, everybody uh, had opportunity to saw a uh, uh, meeting between uh, Putin and number of Russian religious leaders in Kremlin. It looked like not a meeting between a uh, 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 political representative and religious representative, but it looks like a, a report of uh, uh, some officials who uh, uh, reported to uh, uh, his highest boss what, uh, what uh, uh, have been done. And the general problem is that Russian Orthodox Church, or part of Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, is controlled by governmental institutions, which bearing a religious title. But in reality, it's a just a part of government of Russia. And what uh, Rabbi told, these public blessings of Russian uh, atrocities, of war crimes, this uh, justification, official justification. It's not uh, something what uh, happened occasionally that uh, Patriarch during his sermon told something uh, unacceptable. It's a policy. You know the uh, a very uh, concept of Ruski Mir, Russian world. It's a ideology which justified elimination, vanishing of even Ukrainian identity because the, uh, those who uh, uh, live in this uh, ideology of Russian world, they think that Ukrainian identity uh, not permitted. And the main goal of this draft law is to protect Ukrainian citizens from instrumentalization of Russian governmental institution, Moscow Patriarchy, or other institutions, because Rabbi uh, told that uh, such attempts to uh, control uh, religious life in Ukraine is not related to only uh, Orthodox Christians, but every kind of religion in Ukraine. And its law, this law is just about protection of instrument, uh, from instrumentalization. And uh, we, as a representatives of different communities, we can see that no one religious community in Ukraine, we officially have up to 60 different denominations, small, big, very different. 
and only one denomination, Moscow Patriarchate, which officially told that they have no ties, no subordination to Moscow Patriarchy. They proclaimed year ago that they are independent and only one this uh, denomination told that this draft law is against our interest. But in this draft law, you don't find any specific name of the uh, religion or denomination or confession or uh, religious union. It's just about administrative subordination to Moscow. If they have, if they have no ties, no subordination to Moscow, it's not related to them. But if they try to fool Ukrainian society and all people of goodwill around the globe and use their feelings to protect to, uh, religious uh, uh, rights, uh, religious freedom, use to protect Kremlin power and control over religious life in Russia, in Ukraine and other countries, I think it must be clear that it's unacceptable. And uh, we think, we as a council, uh, more than half of the year ago, we met with uh, 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 head of parliament, uh, speaker of our parliament of Rada, uh, and, he, and we have been asked, does anyone in this room you representative of all uh, religious denominations. Does anybody against the ban on subordination of Ukrainian religious community to Russian centers? No one raised their voice that we are in favor. We try to keep this subordination. Everybody uh, agrees that uh, we are all against because we and uh, uh, Bishop Rusin told it we had huge experience of more than 70 years living under Kremlin control of religious life and we very good know what is uh, what it is and especially we know from experience on occupied territories where no freedom at all, including religious freedom, to no one. If you're not loyal to a Russian government, you have no rights. It's no matter you are Christian, Orthodox, Protestant, Jews, Muslim, or uh, someone else. And uh, I think that this law must be treated as a law which have aimed to protect religious freedom from uh, uh, instrumentalization by uh, uh, Kremlin's dictatorship. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I, this is a really important question. Thanks for asking it, and thank you for the fulsome answers. I don't know if either of you wanted to add anything to that. or We support everything that has been said. Okay. We don't see this war as a threat. We know what does it mean to have no freedom. So we know that smell. Mm -hmm. So as an evangelical community, we understand that our country must protect it itself. Mm -hmm. And we don't see this law as a threat for religious freedom. And there is a very good dialogue that we have between our communities and with our government. So. It's really, really impressive. Sure. The same. Uh, on uh, 2015, I think that uh, by initiative of uh, our council, mm -hmm. we uh, tried to make contact with the representatives of religion uh, organization in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, in Oslo. And we spoke about uh, our situation, about Ukraine, about uh, the friendly relation, but uh, they couldn't decide anything. They couldn't decide anything. And when uh, occupied now uh, the uh, uh, some parts from Kherson and others, they tried directly to uh, open uh, new Muftiyat religion organizations and named the 
Mala-Russia. This is the situation. They dictate the people to do that. And everybody left Ukraine and go to Turkey, to Germany, to America, like this. I just want to add one thing, Jeff. Another thing that I want to add, that when they went to that meeting in Oslo, so they can all attest to the fact that when at the meeting of the council, when we spoke about going to Oslo to meet with Russian religious leaders, I voted against it. And I told them that they'll all be prepared by the FSB. Every single representative that came from Russia was prepared by the Russian Secret Service for this meeting with the Ukrainian religious leaders. And they weren't prepared by the ESBU. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, you talk about a democracy, you know, that where the religion is just free and you do your thing, over there, everything and everyone is controlled by the government. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's, this is the danger over here. That's really what the law is addressing. Thank you. So I think we have time for one more question. Nabil, is that you? Uh, yes, I know the Archbishop wanted to speak, so maybe I'll give him that. If I can add a Catholic voice to mm -hmm. this question, which is raised by many, uh, which is, uh, parroted by Tucker Carlson and company, even in the last 24 hours, and which is planted by a genocidal power that has declared that its intent is to eliminate Ukraine as a country, as, as a culture, uh, as an identity. And it's very important to understand who is talking about this and who's bringing the attention of American government, American institutions, global, global the global community to this question. <coughs> In Russia, as was said, but I would like to amplify, there is no real religious freedom for anybody, any confession. All confessions are equally or not, not equally, but all confessions Some are more equal than others. lack religious freedom. My church has probably about half a million members in Russia, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, which was the biggest illegal church in the world from 1945, 46 to 1989. Analogy, what is religious freedom? In the United States, we have 200 parishes for 50,000 people that go to church, 200 parishes. In Russia, there's 10 times as many. We have not a single registered legal parish. It's not impossible. It's impossible for Ukrainian Catholics in Russia to have a parish. There are other confessions that are illegal. The Jehovah's Witnesses, illegal. Uh, the Catholic Church in Russia is, is, is stunted. It's uh, involved in self-censorship. The Orthodox Church is completely controlled. And those dissidents, those priests that said an aggression against Ukraine is immoral have been defrocked. In 300 years, every time there's a Russian occupation, the Ukrainian Catholic Church is rendered illegal, starting with Catherine, 19th century, 20th century, 21st century. In the occupied Donbass area, there is not a single Catholic priest that is functioning, Roman Catholic or Eastern Catholic. And all of our confessions understand that a Russian occupation is a, will bring <clears throat> the limitation or elimination of our religious freedom. So for a voice from Russia to question religious freedom exhibited here, where in the world will you see an Orthodox bishop, <laughs> a Muslim imam, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi sitting together? As you said, look at us. Yeah. Look at us. And that is, that is very important for, for people to see because uh, the eyes of the world are only discovering Ukraine. And uh, we, we're very grateful to the Institute of Peace that fosters this discovery. Because the issues are not simple. No. <coughs> but the image is very clear. And it's before our eyes today. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to take one more question. I'll ask quickly, so and thank I'm, you. I'm asking of Bishop Brusen. In the United States, the evangelical community is growing rapidly, and it has a unique and interesting um, allegiance to, to the Republican Party often, a, a particular part of the Republican Party, and yet the evangelical community in the United States often aligns itself with the Russian Orthodox Church for reasons of faith, for reasons of <coughs> belief. And I find it, and I've worked with Ambassador Herbst on some of this earlier on, that the evangelical community in the United States, which is very important politically, especially today in the US Congress, today when we're looking at whether or not to fund Ukraine going forward for the next year, they need to hear from the Ukrainian evangelical community. They need to hear about the atrocities of the murder and torture of the evangelical pastors in occupied Donbass. They need to hear about the lack of, of, of freedom from you, from your community. What more can you and the evangelical community of Ukraine do to help the evangelical community in the United States understand that the Russian Orthodox Church is not today, for all the reasons you've given, is not the example, and that they should not seek to align with it when it has no respect for the evangelical community. What can the evangelical community of Ukraine do to help us here in the United States with that part of our, of our, our citizenry? Thank you. This is a very important question. and We do our best making our story known among our fellow evangelical believers. Yes, we see that Russian propaganda is extremely effective. And uh, I don't think that only evangelical community can change the perspective of evangelicals in the United States. This is our common goal. And we, you know, even though I am an evangelical pastor, I, am, I, I want to work on behalf not just my tradition, but all people of Ukraine. This war made every Ukrainian my neighbor. So, and impacting uh, evangelical communities in the United States with true information about atrocities and horror of the war, this is our common thing. And I, I believe that this meeting is crucial because we can, by our presence here, we can communicate that there is a unity and this is unjust war. And of course we need to have more support and assistance of all people of the United States, not just evangelical. But we see this problem. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's a really important question. Thank you, Natalie. So I think we've had a very rich discussion, which is um, also a little bit frustrating because I at least have a lot more questions on, on you know, just the few questions we were able to go through, plus a whole bunch of other ones, and I'm sure that many of you all do as well. So I'd really like to thank our panelists, and I'd like to ask uh, Ambassador Herbst um, to, come, uh, to come up and, um, wrap, it up. and wrap it up. You can take questions and email as well. All right, there you go. You heard it. <coughs> uh, Marsha, thank you. And thanks to USIP and Rosam um, for putting this together and the Eurasia Central Atlantic Council is delighted to be part of it. This is a very important event. Uh, Putin's war on Ukraine is a war of war crimes. It's a war designed to destroy Ukrainianness said multiple times by senior Russian officials in Russian media. And when they, say they, when they say that, what they mean is to make sure that Ukrainians in Ukraine under Russian control give up their Ukrainian identity, cease to exist as a community of Ukrainians, which is why some scholars of genocide like Eugene Finkel call this a war of genocide. This war is a war on religious freedom, too. And it's wonderful to have all the major faiths in Ukraine represented on this panel and in the audience uh, to make this clear. It's important because it's part of the, oh, what would you call it, the abomination of this war. It's not simply a war about territory, as some naive realists think. It's important too because Americans believe very strongly in religious freedom. Part of our Constitution. Part of our public debate every day. So the testimony we're hearing today 
from the faith communities in Ukraine of the horrors that they are undergoing in the raw Russian-occupied Ukraine is important for Americans to understand. It's important, as my longtime friend Natalie Uresko pointed out, because there is one fraction of one party in the United States which seems to be clueless about American interests in ensuring that Putin's war on Ukraine fails. And one part of the constituency in that fraction is evangelicals. And we know how badly the Kremlin treats evangelicals in Russia and in Russian-occupied Ukraine. And this is a story that needs to be heard here, not just from evangelicals. We should help. It's all in our interest. Uh, then there's something else, which is really important too. And in fact, it has two dimensions. Russian propaganda is a serious phenomenon. And they have successfully plied two themes which work against Ukraine, which work against common morality, and also, by the way, against American interests. Theme number one is Ukraine is full of Nazis. And boy, you know, you got to make sure that those Nazis in Ukraine are defeated. And we all know the peculiarities of this since Ukraine, at the moment that Russia launched its large invasion, had not just a Jewish president, or excuse me, a Ukrainian who happens to be Jewish president. Similarly, they had a prime minister who was Jewish, Ukrainian Jewish uh, citizen. And fortunately, uh, not entirely, the pushback against that, the truth told against that, has limited its impact, not entirely. Um, this goes back to a, a letter that was published in, I forget, with, it was the New York Times. I think Jim Timoney also helped put that together back in 2014 that laid out that this was a false narrative. And having Rabbi Bleich and others in the Ukrainian Jewish community was important to that. I mean, another very important uh, figure in public life in Ukraine is Joseph Zissels who, of course, spent many years in the Soviet gulag, standing up for the rights of Jews to, well, actually, he's kind of secular Jewish, but right of Jews to identify as Jews, to act as Jews, including practice of their religion. So that one is not fully under control, but largely. But the second one, the second main theme, is still metastasizing malignantly. That's a kind of a mouthful. Uh, that's the notion of serious repression, religious repression in Ukraine. Rabbi Bleich addressed this when he talked about priests of the Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate who are breaking the law by providing sanctuary to Russian agents, maybe providing some information to Russian military, maybe harboring weapons. And of course, beyond that, which is why people are getting arrested in Ukraine, not because they're repressing the Moscow Patriarchy, but there's also the truly non-Christian, non-Orthodox, I say that as an Orthodox Christian, behavior of the MP as they're telling Russian soldiers heading to the front in Ukraine, hey, if you die, all your sins are forgiven. Pardon me, but that reminds me of the notion that the jihadi who gets killed goes to heaven and gets 70 virgins. It's kind of similar, huh? And of course, Patriarch Kirill, who was a agent of the KGB in Soviet times, some habits die hard, is also now funding his own mercenaries to go kill Ukrainians. It would be nice if certain active American media types were to put that on the air when they're trying to slander current Ukraine. Last point. The most famous quote in the, you might say, the um, history 
of American foreign policy realism is John Quincy Adams saying, uh, we don't go abroad for monsters to slay. Uh, we are the well-wishers of everyone's freedom, but the guarantors only of our own. Now, that's a great quote. And people sometimes use that to justify us not providing support to Ukraine. Because those people don't understand that if Putin wins in Ukraine, his next stop is Estonia and Lithuania. But let's put that to the side for the moment. That's not so relevant to this conversation. It's that other point, the subparagraph, the subclause, that we are the well wishes of everyone's freedom. Well, excuse me. When you have so called American journalists propagating falsehoods about Ukraine, slandering those fighting for freedoms, that is not American. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador, and thank you to our distinguished panel, and I think um, we want to give you another round of applause and see you on your way. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.